Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining me, us, wherever you are in the world. I can't wait to speak to my our guest today. His name is Robert L. Snow. And if you don't know who he is, Robert L. Snow is a veteran police detective who had a vivid memory as living a former life as Carol Beckwith. Robert Snow was devoted to evidence and hard facts. He had never given any thought to reincarnation. During a hypnotic regression, he experienced a vivid awareness of being alive in three separate historical scenes. Remaining sceptical, he began to investigate with the intention of disproving reincarnation. Instead, diligent research and corroboration from multiple sources revealed solid evidence that he had lived a former life as Carol Beckwith, a 19th century American artist. His book, Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic, tells a fascinating story of Robert Snow's transformation from skeptic to believer. Robert L. Snow served for 38 years at the Indianapolis Police Department, retiring in 2007 with the rank of captain. While at the police department, he served in such capacities as police department executive officer, captain of detectives and commander of the homicide branch. Robert has been publishing a publishing writer for over 30 years with 20 published books and over 100 articles and short stories published. This is his story and this is his passion. Bob or Robert, welcome to Passion Harvest. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for being here. I was so excited after I read your diary. I thought it was absolutely fabulous. Um, I know in the, you talk about being a skeptic, but I'd love to hear briefly about how it started in your past life regression session. Well, it's, it's kind of started as a dare, kind of an accident. I, besides being a police officer, actually, I was a police officer for 38 years, but I really never wanted to be one. That's never, thought never occurred to me when I was growing up. I kind of fell into an accident. Uh, I, I was uh, in the Air Force during the Vietnam War, and when I got discharged, I come home and I need a job. And my brother was a police officer in that police department. And he said, this time, of course, the Vietnam War was still going on and they were desperate for officers. And so I went down and just applied because I needed a job. Actually, what I always wanted to be rather than the police officer, I wanted to be a writer. My whole life, that's all I ever wanted to be was a writer. And I thought, well, being a police officer would certainly give you ample material to work with as a writer. But people don't realize being a writer, you just don't read, don't just write all the time. You also have to read. You have to read and read from various different sources because being a writer, you have to see how other people handle material. In other words, how if you see a passage that's really clever and really good, you want to analyze it and see how they did it. And vice versa, something really poorly written, you want to make sure you don't do that. But so in, this, in my process of being a writer, I've also been a reader. Well, one time I, I was belonged to a book club and I saw a book they were offering it was called Coming Back by Dr. Raymond Moody. 
And I, I, I it was apparently according to the purpose. All Dr. Moody had done a number of investigations and near near uh, death experiences mm-hmm. and what have you. So I bought the book and read it, and it was kind of interesting. He had a friend who was a psychiatrist who did past life regression therapy, and she wanted Raymond, the author of the book, to do it. So he allowed himself to be hypnotized, and she supposedly took him back to eight past lives and all that. And he talked. The book was well written and was you know pretty good book but at the very end when he he talked about what it really meant he kind of hedged and said i don't know if this is really true past lives or just my imaginations my subconscious you know mind bringing up stuff and that's kind of way i thought i felt about it so i didn't think about it went on to other reading well a couple months later i was at a party my wife was is also was also a police officer and she was a child abuse detective and uh, her office was giving a party and so I was at the party, and there was a woman there. She was uh, she's also was also a police detective, but she was at the same time a practicing uh, psychologist. And so we were talking, uh, you know, about various things, just making chit chat about movies we'd see and television shows. And we got around the books we read, and I remembered this book, and I told her about this book I'd read, and she asked me what I thought about it. And I thought I told her I thought it was just mostly a bunch of rubbish. This is just people. Or trying to find some excuse in this life for their what their bad luck or their misfortune, and so I thought I said again, it's just people are looking for excuse. Say, well, I, this is karma from a bad past life and what have you. And I actually it was kind of late in the party, and I'd I'd had a bit to drink, and I think I I really belittled it so much that I that she got kind of you know not angry but kind of a little irritated. I mean, I didn't realize at the time. That she used past life regression in her in her practice. Right. So anyway, finally she kind of dared me. She says, "Well, if you think it's a silly, try it yourself and and see." And I, I can't, you know, first said, "No, I'm not going to do that." No, no. And then then she got, "Oh, you're scared. Nah, you don't want to ask a man if he's scared or especially oh, okay, a police officer." Then you have so to do it. <laughs> I, yeah, I finally, I finally agreed to do it. But then the next day, after sobering up and feeling a little clear, more clear-headed, I said, "I'm not doing this. This is stupid. I'm not going to do it." It's, it was foolishness. But every time I'd run into this lady, the, the detective psychologist, she'd ask me, have you made the appointment? Because she had given me the uh, name and number of a friend of hers who also did past life regression and suggested I go to her to, to, to try it out. And I'd always make some kind of excuse. Now, I, you know, I have two meetings and I had to get the report ready and I'm going to do it. But the funny thing is I hadn't run this woman. I'd run into her at the most once a month before this. It seemed like after this every day. I'd see her somewhere and it got, oh God, you see her there. Oh God, you know, you're going to make some other excuse again. And I seemed like I couldn't avoid her. I just every day it seemed like I'd see her walk down the hall and I know she's going to ask me. So finally, I, I just got kind of, I thought, this is, this is stupid. So I went ahead and just made the appointment. I thought, well, I'll make it. But this time I was, by this time I was kind of irritated. I thought, well, I'll make the appointment. I'll go there. And then I'm going to I'm going to record it all, and I'm going to show that show this show this detective slash psychologist how foolish the whole thing is. Because at the time I didn't really think I could be hypnotized. I thought I was much too strong-willed. So anyway, I, I, I did go ahead and make the appointment and went and seen her friend uh, at a again she was a uh, psychologist who did uh, you know besides regular therapy also past life regression therapy. Yeah. And. Obviously, you were very skeptical during the session. I just have to say, Dr. Raymond Moody's been on the show. Oh, right. <laughs> but obviously, you went to the session very skeptical and thinking you yes. couldn't be hypnotized. What happened? 
Well, again, I, I decided that I was going to cooperate 100%. That with Dr. The lady I went to was uh, Mary Ellen Griffith. Just nice, nice lady, very nice lady. Very, she's very gracious when I came in. To, and then, you know, she didn't, you know, ask me why. I, I just told her she asked me if I had any problems. I said no. I just think that past life regression is interesting. I want to try it. And she didn't seem to have any problems with it and all that. And again, so we start. So, so we talk, sit and talk a bit. But I, she said, okay, so we're going to start. So anyway, we went through. Gosh. I don't know how long of she, she did a lot of imagery. She told me, you know, okay, tell me about your college graduation, you know, in imagery. Tell me all about it. Tell me about something happened in high school and something happened in grade school. And I could see where she was going. It was who was going that younger and younger. And I would, again, I was being nice and I was cooperating, but I thought this is really silly because, again, I still didn't believe I could be hypnotized. I didn't think that was possible. So, anyway, anyway, so finally she said, okay, now imagine a balloon. Now I'm sitting on this couch in her office, and I could, but my eyes closed. Now the window's to my right, and I could see a, a purple blob, but I knew it was just the sun coming through the windows on the right. And I said, "Yeah, I can see a, a purple balloon." And she said, "Okay." So now imagine you imagine you take the balloon up. Now I'm, I'm going along with everything because I'm getting. I want to cooperate so I can prove to the to the detective that this is all foolishness. Nothing. It didn't work. So I I try to imagine myself in the balloon going up. And anyway, so she said, see yourself travel. I said, look down, see what you see. Now, for, interesting enough, I looked down, and I looked like I could see little spots of light below. But I thought, well, that's probably just, you know, glare off the floor. It's not right. really anything. But it looked like little, little spots of light below. So anyway, I'm, I'm contending I'm a cooperating. I'm imagining what she says to imagine. And she says, oh, anyway, she says, okay. Now, she says, reach up above you, and there's a release. I'll take the balloon down. We're going to land, and we'll see what we see. So. So I tried to manage it, but then nothing happened. And, and we went through this at least a dozen times to try and now pull the release and I, I do it. Nothing. I wasn't going to make up anything. I mean, this was her daydream, not mine. So I was uh, I was tremendously skeptical, but I, mm -hmm. I kept trying to manage it, but nothing happened. And we went through this for, oh gosh, at least 10 minutes or so, her trying to get me to bring his balloon down. Nothing had happened. And I thought yeah, at that time, it was kind of confirmation of what I had thought, that this is all silly foolishness. That, I, that is basically people making up things, think they're hypnotized just to please the therapist. So anyway, she, but she did, but interesting enough, Dr. Griffith didn't seem to the least bit perturbed about it. She said, okay, no, no problem, okay. Finally said, okay, apparently you don't want to land in these places. She said, now see if you can imagine a mountain. Now this, by this time I've been sitting at least 20, 25 minutes on her couch, which was an incredibly hard couch. And I, but I hadn't moved and I was really stiff and starting to ache a little bit. And I thought, so all of a sudden I could see a mountain. That wasn't a clear, vivid, it's more like a daydream type thing. I could see a mountain. I said, okay, I can see a mountain. She said, okay, I'll take the, the balloon over to the mountain. So I tried to imagine taking the balloon over to the mountain. She said, okay, now land. And I tried to imagine, and actually I did land this time. I thought, okay, I can do that. So anyway, she said, okay, what do you see? Now, interestingly, there was a, she said, there's a cabin here. Can you see it? And interesting enough, I could. It was a log cabin, but the, log, the logs were going vertical rather than horizontal. Mm -hmm. And a, a reader of mine later wrote me and told me that was a French method of building log cabins. I, I didn't know at the time. But anyway, she said, okay, go into the cabin. And what do you see? So I go in. I don't see anything. Again, I'm, I'm still thinking this is her daydream, not mine. I don't see anything. So she said, okay, try to imagine a large meal and, you know, and, and, and bright lights. And I'm, I'm doing all that. I'm getting, I'm trying to cooperate. So she finally said, okay, we're done here. We're going to walk down into this valley. I said, there are 12 steps. 
said, we're going to walk down and we'll count the steps as you walk down. And so she starts off with 12. And she starts doing this thing. Each, each number's getting longer. 11, 10. I'm thinking, oh, God, this is like a stage, you know, a stage hypnotist. I'm, I'm thinking to myself how it's kind of, this is almost ridiculous. I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? What am When's I, it going to finish? So, so silly. What am I doing here? So anyway, she counts down and down. And finally, we get down to, th- you know, three, two, one. And we hit one. Something really bizarre happened. I was in a valley. I mean, I, I was, I knew I was still sitting in the seat. I could still feel the couch under me. I could hear traffic outside and went to right. But at the same time, I was in a valley. And it was so, it was as vivid as, it was vivid as any true life. I looked around and I was walking along the valley and I could see that I could see the trees. I could, I could, funny enough, I could feel a wind blowing in my face. I figured at the time it was just air conditioning in her office. I could look and I stopped and looked and look at the leaves. I could see the veins and leaves. It was it was so vividly clear. Right. And Doctor Gr- Doctor Griffith said, "Okay, now look down. Well, look down at yourself. What do you see?" Now I looked down and I saw a pair of really dirty gnarled feet and some really dirty nasty fur. And in my left hand, I'm carrying looks like a piece of a big big piece of a tree limb. Everybody knows what cavemen look like. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew what it was. I mean, this is, you know, everybody's seen movies and, you know, TV programs. I knew what this was. I was obviously some kind of cape. But I didn't realize until later when I listened to her recording again that before this, she had told me to go back to the very first life I had lived on Earth. Go back to mm-hmm. the very first, my very first existence. I didn't remember the time. But apparently, according to when I listened to the tape, I found that's what she said. So anyway, I walk along this valley and I described it to Doc Griffith. Then suddenly, I find myself I'm saying things I don't know what I'm going to say. It's like they just blur, they just blurt out my mouth. And it's, it's obviously the person whose body I'm having speaking. In so English. All of a sudden, I tell Dr. Griffith, this is my home. I live here. And I thought to myself, why did I say that? I don't know. I don't know where this place at. And I pointed. I said, there's a cave up on the hill, up on the side of the hills where I live. And Dr. Griffith said, okay. He said, go to the cave. Now, I didn't, it's funny thing, I didn't walk to the cave. I didn't, you know, I, all of a sudden, it would be, two or three seconds of kind of like gray fog. Next thing I knew, I was staying at the entrance to the cave. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, I started walking in the cave and I had this awful smell. I mean, whoever lived in this cave was not very hygienic. Now, I couldn't imagine where that would come from. I mean, where, I mean, it was really a disgusting smell walking in this cave. So I described the cave to Dr. Griffith. And again, it's the funny thing. I wasn't scared or, you know, anything like this or what was going on. I knew, but now at that time, I was smart to realize that I had been hypnotized. I mean, it, I ain't that big a dummy. I knew that I had been hypnotized, and this was hip, hypnosis work on my mind. But again, I didn't think it was anything supernatural. I thought, this is simply my mind under the control of hypnosis, and I'm, I'm just basically seeing things that I've seen somewhere else before. This is out of a movie or out of a book or some kind of experience. I'm just mm-hmm. re- repeating it for Dr. Griffith. So anyway, she's fine. said, okay, I want you to go to your death. Go to your death. And tell me what you see. So again, there's just a couple of minutes of kind of gray fog. And next thing I know I'm not in the body anymore. I'm floating above in, in the cave. I'm floating. I see a little scrawny man laying on the floor of the cave. And he's wrapped in furs. He's really coughing really hard, coughing really, really hard. And he was dying. So I described everything Dr. Griffith. She said, okay, now go out of the cave and look up in the light. Do you see anything? I look up in the sky. I'm sorry. Do you see anything? I said, yeah, there's a real bright light in the sky. She said, okay, go to that. Before I went to that, again, I just blurted out that this life was a bad life because I didn't have anybody. That I was alone this whole life. And nobody didn't have anyone. 
So Dr. Griffith said, okay, I'll tell you what, go to, I'll tell you what, go to a life where you did have someone. Go to your life where you had somebody important. So I fly up into the light. And there's, again, there's maybe four or five seconds of gray fog. And the next thing I, next thing I see, it's funny, it's kind of like a movie, a, a movie that's out of focus. I can't see, you can't really see a whole lot of what's going on. Then suddenly it's snapped into focus. I see I'm walking along a street. It's in a big city. But it's not the present time because there's gas lights and there's horse-drawn carriages going by, but a lot of tall buildings. But interesting enough, it was a summer day, and I could feel the sun beating down on me. I could feel the heat of the sun. And I'm in a little closed, dark office. And again, again, I'm th- I know what this is. This is hypnosis. And I, you know, truthfully, I was really enjoying it this time because it was it was kind of like one of the greatest rides you ever went to an amusement park. You know, you can go to an amusement park and they have mm-hmm. virtual reality rides and they look right, real. Right. They really do look real, but they're not. And that's why I thought about this, this is fun. And she said, okay, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to meet a woman. She said, okay, now you've met up her. Who is it? And I described the woman to her and everything. And I said, we're going to a cafe. So we walked to a uh, outdoor cafe and I sat down and she said, what do you order? I said, I order wine and sure, it's got special water. So I had to talk about this while she said, okay, she says, go forward five years in your life. So I go forward five years, and I, I'm in a, a hallway of an apartment. I'm arguing with a woman who I felt at the time I, I told this to my wife. I'm arguing with her. And we're having some kind of, I don't know what we're talking about, some kind of argument. I just storm away and walk down the hall, and I walk to the room, and it's, a, it's a, an artist studio. There's the, a hole on the right, a whole wall on the right. There's all solid windows, and there's a skylight above me. And the place is just filled with dozens of, port- of portraits and paintings. Walls are just covered with. So obviously I wasn't terribly successful painter because I had a lot of unsold paintings there. So I described to the, in my studio to Dr. Griffith and everything and what I saw and everything. Dr. Griffith, okay. So I said, now, so now go five years in the future. So I go another five years and I'm at some kind of party. I don't know what, I don't know what the party's for, but everybody's come up and congratulate me. Everybody's come up, you know, just tell me to congratulate everything. I have no idea, but I could feel the person's bias inhabiting the artist's body. He was really happy. That this is one of the happiest moments of his life. And you could feel that. And I, I couldn't, you know, I, I had no idea what he was happy about, but I could feel the happiness. So anyway, we, I described this to Dr. Griffin, and she's fine. She says, go ahead, five years. And I didn't do it. I, you know, when you think about your life, how many times do you ever experience total happiness, total joy and happiness? And I want to stay a little longer. That's the interesting part about hypnosis. You, you know, stage magicians would think you're completely under control of the, hip, you know, the hypnotist. And you'll dance around and cluck like a chicken. That's not really true. I mean, you still have control. In this case, I stayed for a few minutes at the party. Even Dr. Griffin kept telling me, go five years, for, go five years. And I didn't. But finally, I, I finally went ahead five years, and I'm at an apartment. I say, I'm not a, 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 I go, she said, I want you to go, she said, I want you to go, to, no, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I went to some gardens first. And then later on, she said, I want you to go to your death. She says, go, go to your death and tell me what happens. So I see myself in an apartment and I've died. And she said, okay, now what? And I see myself rising up out of the body and going through the ceiling. Now, everybody's seen movies where people die, the ghost comes out of your body. I'm thinking, that's all this is. I've seen this in movies a hundred times. So I come, I, I die, and I come up out of the body. And Dr. Griffith says, what was your biggest regret about this life? I said, I regret that your wife and I didn't have children, but my wife couldn't have children. She said, okay. She said, now, you know, go into the light. And I look around, and I'm over a huge city. I mean, this is a huge, huge city. With just, you know, the miles, you can see lights for miles in every direction. And 
And she said, oh, good light. But I didn't. Again, I didn't. I did what I wanted to do. And I saw myself flying through some woods. And I could tell that it, it was a cold, like a cold fall night because the, the trees still had their leaves, but it looked really cold, brisk night. And in a few moments later, I'm at, I'm at, a, at a big mansion and I'm on, I'm floating and I'm seeing it looking through the window on the second or third floor. And above the fireplace is a painting. And I told her, I want to look at my paint, one of my paintings one more time before I went. And it's a still life painting. And I described the painting to Dr. Griffith. It was a still life with a big sun in the background. She said, fine. So finally after that, I did go into light. She said, okay, now I want you to go to a life that you experienced as a woman. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah. So I want you to go back to when you're a woman. So next thing, there's about four or five seconds of gray fog. And sure enough, I'm in another, I'm in another body. But I look down, and this is a woman's body. I thought, oh hell, you know, because I, I I really thought, no, this is not, how can now how can you imagine that? Now I mean, it's one thing about you know, just imagine being a ghost or a caveman. You I mean everybody knows that, but how do I imagine I'll be a woman? But I looked down, I could see my body was at a woman's, and I'm standing in front of a monument, some kind of monument. It's a pretty good sized building or circular with pillars, and all of a sudden again, like like in the previous lives. I start saying things, the things that I didn't know I was going to say. And I talked about how oh, this is my job. I live, I work here. I bring, I bring things down to the altar. So anyway, we go through a long discussion with Dr. Griffiths and things, and we go through move forward and move forward. And finally, I see myself after the, the, the job at the, at the, at the altar, I'm in a wagon with an ox driven wagon with an old man. And I look to my right and there's a little girl, about four or five year old little girls sitting there. And Again, and not I didn't know who it was, but in my life, then the body was occupied, I knew it was my daughter. But interesting enough, it was someone I recognized from this life. It was my stepdaughter from this life. But it wasn't, she wasn't age. At that, at that point, I had the regression. She was a teenager. But when I looked down at her, she was the same age she was when her mother and I got married, just a little girl. So anyway, I went, I went to this farm with this old man, and he died pretty quickly. And so I was kind of, you know, and in those days, I don't think women had much rights to any kind of property and what have you. Now, next thing I do, I'm taking my daughter back to the altar and I'm giving her to the altar. Now, I'm trying to just, I'm trying to justify to Dr. Griffith why I'm doing this, how her life would be so much better there. They take care of her. But I knew in my heart, at least the person I was, bodies I'd have, that I was abandoning her because life would be a lot easier for me without a little kid tagging along. How much life easier be just, you know, without a little kid to worry about. But all the time, I'm trying to justify Dr. Griffith how, you know, how, you know, this is so much better for her. They'll take care of her, show the home and all this kind of thing. And I basically abandoned her there. And so I, and then I see myself, and I went and she said, go 20 years in the future. I see myself in a, in a village next to uh, a large body of water. And I'm a, I work with fish, somehow I work with fish. So anyway, Dr. Griffith told me, he says, okay, go to your death. And so I found myself drowning. It was a kind of a horror. that was kind of a scary feature because I could feel myself. I was caught in some nets and I could taste salt water. And right at that moment, I could taste salt water. And I thought that is really bizarre. And anyway, I ended up drowning. But at that time, I was kind of glad that I ruined the life because I felt this tremendous guilt, this awful guilt on me about abandoning my daughter. And I'm thinking to myself at the time, how silly this is. I, this is all make believe and all that. But I still felt a tremendous guilt about abandoning my daughter at the altar. So anyway, Dr. Griff said, okay, now I want you to go back to the most previous life before you were a Bob Snow. Go back to the life you were before you were a present one. So again, there's three or four seconds of, uh, of gray fog. 
and all of a sudden I'm in the, the artist, the same artist studio. And I realize I'm the artist again, and I'm painting a portrait. I'm in the same studio painting a portrait. But interesting enough, it was a portrait of a hunchback woman. Interesting. I thought, boy, you know, how many how many paintings of hunchback women you ever seen? Yes. Yeah. So I'm the the thing is the interesting thing about the regression though. It was so clear. I could see every brushstroke, every brushstroke of the painting. And I could see I was just about done. I could see every single brushstroke about it. And I remember telling Dark Griffith, I, I'm doing a portrait. I hate doing portraits. I hate them, but I need the money. I really hate doing portraits, but I need the money. So anyway, so we, we talked about this, and I described it. And, we, and so we went on to the uh, to the next, she's a go chair to go five years forward and so on. And I go, and I see myself in this really heated conversation with someone about poor lighting for my painting. In fact, I'm, I'm having some kind of exhibition. I'm arguing with the, with somebody who's in charge about how bad the lighting is my painting. So I talked about this for a while, and then she said, okay. She said, now go to the, you know, so forth. You know, so another five years. So another five I'm in a garden, and I can hear piano music coming from my house up just up outside the garden, just outside the garden. And I described Dr. Griffith. She said, where are you at? And again, I didn't know where I was at, but my, my I just immediately said, I'm in France. Whoever the body, the artist, the artist never knew where he was going. So I walked into the house. There's my wife playing on the piano with a bunch of friends standing. She's playing the piano, but your friends are standing around. So anyway, I described, talked about this. Dr. Griffith finally said, okay, now go, go, you know, go five years in the future. So what you see. So anyway, between this grave, I'm in the gray fog again, waiting between, and all of a sudden I feel overwhelmed. I mean, it's, it's like a like a brick, a ton of bricks on my chest. And I, I just blurred out, I didn't, I blurred out, she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. Now, I have no idea who I'm talking about, but I knew it was a person extremely important to the artist because I felt this intense grief, this awful grief that this person was so important that died. So anyway, while I, after I said that, after I said this, all of a sudden the recorder were along, clicked off with a raw click, no mice, and that was it. It was over. Now, I'm now I'm kind, of, I'm kind of embarrassed in a way because I went there feeling so certain that I couldn't be hypnotized. And not only had I been, I'd be sitting there babbling for at least a half hour, you know, about stuff that was foolish. I thought at the time, still thought at the time, it's foolishness, you know. Just your so imagination. I, I, yeah, just, that's what I thought. I, I thought, you know, I thought, no, the stuff, when you're hypnotized, you access your subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And I thought these are old memories from this life that have been reordered, you know, reordered, reordered to a story and brought up so that. I can make a you know a story for Dr. what Dr. Griffiths talked about. I didn't believe any of this is real. Certainly not. You know, of course it could be real, but I. But at the same time, I just I was so flustered, mainly because the regression was so vivid. I didn't realize that that I had a a full sensory what they call a full sensory regression, which apparently is pretty rare, where you not only see and hear, but you can taste, you know, feel, touch, smell. Uh, but anyway, the problem with it is everything was so vivid. I mean, it was as vivid as real life. I mean, they, I could, they yeah, often I could, say I that about past yeah, life. It, it's but it was extraordinary. Not only that, but you can relive them. They're always there in your memory. You can relive them vividly yeah, the, over and over again. Yeah. The point was, it's no longer in my subconscious. It's now in my in my regular memory. And so I, you're right. And actually, for oh gosh, maybe four or five years or so after, I could close my eyes and still see the painting, like the painting Hunchback Woman. After, I could still see every brushstroke. For several years afterward, I could close my eyes and still see every single brushstroke. So again, I didn't know. I wasn't sure what, what to do. I really wasn't. So I basically just got, because Dr. Griffin wanted to talk about how you realize, you recognize how this affects your present life. And I really did at the moment. I just, I just muttered something 
you know, tour, and I had to get. I'd want to get out of there. I need to think. I need to take <laughs> it over. So I, yeah. So I basically, I basically just butter stuff and got out of there. And so I went out and sat in my car for a while. And I'm trying to think. You know, it wouldn't have bothered me if it'd been all blurry and fuzzy. You know, and everything wouldn't bother you at all. Because you think this is just stupid memory. But it, the point was, everything was just so vivid, so clear. Yeah, it's like a photo it, it, it you can me. keep bringing up. And I um, didn't know what to make. I just want to ask you when you're imagining yourself, or probably not the when you're remembering yourself as these lives, did you see yourself from above or were you actually integrated in that person? It depends. It depends. Like I said, when I'd go to my death in the caveman, I was from above. Mm-hmm. But now, other, other, other than that, I was in the body of most everybody else. The only one I really got, did an out of body thing on was the. Uh, was the caveman the rest of them is pretty much in the body and and during the point of your death what feelings or emotions were you experiencing going and to the death, light that, that they didn't really i didn't really feel anything a lot of like i said the, the caveman i wanted to get out that was a bad life so i was happy to leave it the alder girl i was particularly glad to leave that one because i felt this awful guilt once you went to light of course the guilt and everything is gone i didn't feel any particular emotions didn't feel you know sad or you know anything or anything like that is Basically, I just went in, went into it and started with the next one. And then going towards the light, do you have any memories after that? No. Again, you have just four or five. What I have is four or five seconds. It's like gray fog. You really couldn't see much of anything. You're in a real dense fog. You don't really see anything. Then the next scene starts coming. But again, it never came in immediately sharp. The next scene after you come out of the fog would always be kind of blurry. After maybe three or four seconds, all of a sudden it just snapped into clarity. And then you're sitting in, I mean, I, I know what happens, but afterwards, would, is the word a little bit obsessed to find the artist? Well, I, I, I don't, what I told myself after it's done is that this is just subconscious memories of things you've seen in this life done. You just need to forget about it, Bob. It was just an interesting experience, certainly, but you need to forget about it. It doesn't really mean anything. But the problem was I couldn't stop thinking about it. I mean, it, it was the problem again being, that I could taste the salt water, I could feel the sun, I could smell the, uh, the cave. That's not that's not an ordinary memory. It's mm-hmm. and everything again. If I close my eyes, I could still see the scenes completely, all the scenes completely. And it started to bug me because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I would think about it all day long for 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 at least a month. Or so afterward, I mean, I could not. I mean, every minute, every day, it's like I was thinking about it. I couldn't shut my mind. And it started to worry me because as a police officer, I've seen people with obsessions serious obsessions and believe me it seldom turns out good and i thought well bob what you need to do to get rid of this obsession to find one of those two paintings if you find the still life or the hunchback woman painting you will remember where you saw them at you could you saw them in this life somewhere you just don't remember it because it's probably just your past and so why don't glance at them and you know and go on or maybe there's a little blurb of the artist down below and you read about this artist that's how you do other things about him and so i thought well bob if you could find one of these two paintings that would explain everything. And then you'll realize this is nothing supernatural. This is nothing spiritual. This is simply your old memories coming back to you. And so what I decided to do is go to, I was going to go to the, unfortunately now this, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> this was pre-internet days. And so in pre-internet days, you just didn't put a, you know, put, you know, uh, picture, Google. You know, <laughs> yeah, Google something. You didn't simply look at the hunchback woman and put it in the search. And you had to go to the library and take books off the shelf and study them. So, I got, what I did, I went to the public library, went to the art section. They had when that I didn't realize at the time how many books they had a lot of art books. And I, I started, well, I started going to my lunch every day, 
and going through all their art books. And I, was, I was sure I would find one of these two portraits, I mean, with two paints, because I'm not much of an artificial animal. Excuse me. I'm, but I figured they had to be halfway famous or I wouldn't know about them. And so mm -hmm. I, I basically went there and I started looking through art books. I <clears throat> started thumbing through them until I could find I thought, I'll find them. Sooner or later, they're still alive or the hunchback one bang will show up. I'll say, oh, okay, I saw that, you know, that this, you know, this small art showing, you know, two years, you know, 10 years ago, what have you, then everything falls into place. Well, if I took me a better than a month and I went through every single art book and I didn't find either one. Now that really started bugging me. I thought, so I thought, well, maybe, maybe the art, maybe they are, they don't have a big enough collection here. So I started visiting bookstores around Indianapolis and I started going to the bookstores and look at their art books. And then I did that probably number so I didn't find it. Then I, then I finally started calling some galleries and talking and described the paintings to them. And I found an interesting thing. In the pre-internet days, there was no listing of paintings. You had to basically know where a painting was, or you, there, there'd be unless it's now lamp. It was either a Renoir or a Van Gogh or something. They would know where it's at. But a, a, a lesser painting, there was no central listing of them. So. I wasn't sure. I mean, I went through everything trying to find these things. I, I was, I was a, oh, three or four months investigation trying to and, find And them. this is what you specialized in anyway <laughs> yeah, as a that, detective. That's what really bugged me because I thought this would be an easy case. This wouldn't be that hard a case. And I've been, I've been working investigations for a while. And so I thought, ah, this should be easy to solve. But it wasn't. Because I, I tried it. I even went to a uh, New Age bookstore in Indianapolis and to find some books. That was adventurous. The, yeah, yeah, I went in disguise, <laughs> needless to say. Uh, but I didn't tell him it was. But I went there and I got some books on past life regression to see if maybe there's something to explain what I saw and how it came to do. And I found that a lot of people had very similar experiences to mine. But more than that, at the back of these books, they had a script for a self-hypnosis self that you could do it yourself. And that sounds good. But believe me, that's a lot harder to do than you think. So I, I, I tried it, oh, maybe half a dozen times. And twice while I was doing it, I could feel myself going into the same state I was in in Dr. Griffith's office. But it only lasted for maybe a three or four seconds. I would see the number 1917. Then it, it just clicked off. It just bump, you'd be out of it again. Twice, I saw the number 1917. That's all I, that's all I saw. But finally, to tell you the truth, I, was, I told you I was in charge of homicide for a number of years in Indianapolis. And now we had a really good clearance right here, but that still doesn't mean we solved every case. There are some cases we simply did not solve because they could not be solved. We just didn't have the evidence to solve them. And so I figured what you do with these cases, you simply deactivate them, which doesn't mean they're going to be forgotten about. That means they go into the shelf and two new evidence comes in. And when new evidence comes in, then you reopen the case. So I thought this was going to happen in this case. There's just no evidence. There's not enough evidence. I can't solve it. So I'm going to put it on the shelf and just forget. I said, Bob, there's nothing more you can do. Put it on the shelf. Forget about it. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that, that, sounds, that sounds good. It, it didn't work. <laughs> I still thought about it all the time. But anyway, and, did you, and you didn't have anyone to talk to about this? No, I didn't have any. I mean, who you talk to about this? Come on. I mean, who do you really talk well, to? Well, I guess you don't talk to your police, your detective colleagues No, about you don't this. talk to your detective because this is silly, you know, because they, they look at you like, okay. They think you're yeah. going crazy. Yeah, yeah, they think, yeah, yeah, you've been drinking or you've been crazy <laughs> one or two. I didn't even talk to my wife. I didn't even talk to my wife about it. She she was probably one of the best detectives I've ever met. She's an excellent detective. But I didn't even talk to her about it because I thought she'd feel the same way. So anyway, about a month after this, my wife it was coming up to our anniversary, which is in April. And we decided that year to go somewhere that neither of us had been before. So she called me one day at work and says, what do you think about going to New Orleans? 
I thought, well, that's not a good idea. I'd never been to New Orleans. She hadn't. I had a friend who I'd met at a uh, writer's conference who lived in New Orleans. I thought, well, we could go down there and, you know, look around, have a good time. So we booked a trip for New Orleans on our, for our, for our anniversary. So we flew down there and it was, you know, it's, it was in April. So it's, the weather wasn't, you know, really terribly ugly mm-hmm. or anything. It was a, it was a if you go there another time of year, it's really hot. But anyway, we, we had a good time. My wife is a real history buff. And if you go, you can't throw a rock in New Orleans on hitting something historical. So we did a lot of, she went to a lot of plantations and a lot of, you know, war, you know, the, the War of 1812 battle site, things like that. So anyway, the last day of our vacation, uh, we, we had, our plane didn't leave till the evening. So we had all day. And I had noticed when, when at nighttime, we used to go down to the French Quarter and go visit, hear all the bands and visit some of the bars and what have you. And I noticed on our way every night to French Quarter, all kind of little neat shops in the French Quarter, uh, you know, memorabilia shops, art galleries, uh, uh, antique shops. So I told her, well, when we spend the afternoon for our plane leaves, it's just going to visit these shops in the French Quarter. And she thought it was good, so like a good idea. And so we, we did. We, so we spent the afternoon, we visited these historic memorabilia shops, antique stores. We finally got to Royal Street. In those days, in Royal, Royal Street in New Orleans was our galleries. Right. And so we used to, we started walking in, and it, it's funny they had some beautiful beautiful paintings of these things. Of course, much more than I could afford certainly. But uh, anyway, we started walking down. And I noticed as we walked down Royal Street, the galleries kept getting smaller and the paintings more obscure. Anyway, we finally get to the shop at the very end of the street, and we walk in, and it's a two story. And it, it said had a sign said Modern Art upstairs. My wife, I never have been a fan of Modern Art, but she is. She went upstairs, so I'm walking along the the first floor. I'm looking at paintings. I don't recognize any paintings. And I certainly don't recognize any artists. And I'm just, I'm walking along and I'm looking and looking. And I get to the corner and there's a uh, portrait sitting on a easel in the corner. And I glance at it. And all of a sudden, now this was probably the most frightening moment. I've been, I was a police officer for 38 years. And I was in a lot of situations that were really scary, really scary. But I have never been this scared. Oh, I Bob. At it. <laughs> yeah, I looked at it. It was the portrait of the hunchback woman. Gosh. Now, you know, come on. You got to think, come on. What's the odds of seeing this regression, searching for months, and to just stumble on it by accident? Well, nothing happens by accident. Yeah, well, I know, but at the moment, I'm trying trying to explain this to myself. The head of homicide detective, and then you're shocked by It says make any sense. I mean, believe me, police officers don't believe in coincidences. Whenever we have an investigation where there's a startling coincidence, it's almost always something made to look that way by somebody. It's actually something oh, they have done. Is, but you're thinking, okay, okay, who could have done this? You know, if it's, a, if it's not a coincidence. And I'm, I'm just staring at this painting, and I, I just can't believe it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I've never been that frightened. Because in police work, I mean, yeah, you go to a lot of frightened situations. But you basically who have training experience to know what to do. You you're, I mean, pre- you're prepared almost. You're prepared, and you know what their, you know what their response is like to be, what your response should be. I had no, I mean, how do you deal with this? I mean, I had no experience, no training. I'm sitting there just flabbergasted. I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe you're not here, Bob. Maybe you're a nursing home somewhere with wires and tubes and everything. And you just, you're just daydreaming this. I mean, what, come on. What's the odds that this could happen? I just kept staring at it. The thing was, then I told myself, well, no, Bob, this looks like the painting. It looks pretty good, but it's not the same painting. But as I said, I know days I could close my eyes and I did. I could see every breaststroke in my when I closed my eyes, opened up, it was the painting. And I'm just I'm just I'm just stumbling. I'm just grasping for some explanation for this. There's gotta be some rational explanation to this, but I could not come up with it. Fortunately, after I was looking at it there for a whole three or four minutes at the painting, the salesman sees me 
and comes up and says, I bet you're thinking how nice it look over your fireplace. I think, yeah, that's all I want. Picture of a hunchback woman, I don't know where my fireplace, but I didn't say it. I said, I don't recognize the artist. Who's the artist on this? And he told me, he said, well, come over. I got a little, I got a little bio on him. Are you, so, so you're I acting thought, really cool and calm at this point. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't cool and calm. <laughs> I was sweating. I was sweating rivers and I was shaking and I was shaking. I thought, I mean, he must thought I was really excited. I really <laughs> love this painting because I was, just, I was a nervous wreck. So anyway, he took me over and he pulled, he looked searched through his desk and he finally found it. And it was a, maybe a quarter page, quarter type page. It said the main state, man's name was J. Carroll Beckwith. And I, of course, I'd never heard that. I'd never heard of J. Carroll Beckwith. No, he was, no. But anyway, then, but they also, then he said, and I looked at it and I could see some things and I recognized that number one, he died in 1917. And I remember, I remember seeing the, uh, the number 1917, I think. No, no, Bob, it's just, I'm telling myself, it's a coincidence. It's a coincidence. It, that means nothing. Then that's all also that he, you know, that he had uh, gone, he'd been to France, which I remember telling Dr. Griffith that I was France. Mm-hmm. He some, won some awards for his painting and died that I, I remember, you know, to being at a party for some kind of getting some kind of award. And even there were five different confirmations of, the, of what I'd see. And I'm still telling myself, Bob, no, 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 there's some logical explanation for this. But the nice thing was I realized now I had information. I knew who this person was and when he was born, when he died. And I could go back to Annapolis, look him up, and then I'll, I'll remember where, you know, where I saw the information from. So you didn't buy the painting? Oh no! I think it was like five thousand dollars. I'm, you know, I'm sure that's why I do. I'd been five thousand dollars for painting. Get it home, then find out. Oh yeah, I saw this. I saw this four years ago. You know, at some you know some some art place. Mm-hmm. Now I'm stuck with a five thousand dollar painting of a hunchback woman. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Now my wife would have killed me. <laughs> she would have killed me. And I wouldn't blame her. No, no, I didn't. I didn't buy it because again, at the time I I had a number. I've had a number of my readers write me say, "Why did you buy the painting?" Well, I mean, the point was, at the moment, I still believe there had to be some explanation yes. that this was not past life thing. This was a, just some kind of, there had to be some explanation for this. I had seen this painting. Now, me f- running into it in New Orleans, yes, that was certainly wild. That was wildly coincidental. But I still believed I had seen it somewhere in this life, and I have just remembered it. So I thought, well, now I've got the information on back. I'll go back to Annapolis. I'll go to the public library, and then I'll find out, you know, all by it, and I'll remember where I saw that. So we left, and I went back, and of course I went back, went to went to the library immediately after we got back to Annapolis. Interesting enough, the librarian helped me because you know those days again there was no internet; you had to find stuff. And she found some stuff that got all together wouldn't have been a half a type page. And and she basically said, "Look, Beckwith was just not a very famous painter. He wasn't that good. And he wasn't that famous. And he has no he has no landmark paintings everyone's seen. He was basically a portrait painter." Who made his who made his way in life by painting portraits of rich people? And what and, was and, his nationality? Yeah, and that that was that was he, that was it. That, he was American. Yeah, he was a yeah he was a, he was American who lived in he lived in mostly in New York City. He was mm-hmm. actually born in uh, Missouri in Hannibal, Missouri, the birthplace of uh, Mark Twain. But he actually lived he lived they lived for his childhood in Chicago. But then he has all the adulthood was in New York City because. Right. It actually, it turned out when I started looking up his history that uh, his family, of course, his dad was fairly well off. They were they were pretty pretty. His dad was a uh, wholesale a wholesale uh, food wholesaler in mm-hmm. Chicago, and they lived in a nice house and everything. But actually, there's enough the fire the eighteen the eighteen seventy one fire in Chicago, the one about uh, O'Leary O'Leary's cow knocked over the lantern and burned the Chicago down. 
of course, that's his fable. But actually, there was a terrible fire, and it burnt his house and his dad's business down. And so his dad arranged for him to go live with an uncle in New York. And that's how, that's how he's got to like New York. So anyway, I, so anyway, the, the librarian in Indianapolis said, look, we don't have much here. But said, you need to go up to the art museum. They have a library there, a much more extensive library. You'll probably find more information about him up there. And I thought, that sounds like a good idea. And so I drove up there and went to their library. And they did have a little more information, not a whole lot. But they had a little more information. And what happened is all the information they have, I'd find one more, one more fact that was true. Now I kept, you know, this time I'm I'm really disoriented and confused because these things, okay, all these things I saw are true. But I I'm still telling myself they're true because somewhere you saw this painting, you saw a little bio of the artist, and that's why they're true. Because you know, like I went to the yard in the library, they they had a they found out that he died. I told you I thought he died in the fall. We died October 24th. I said I thought he died in a large city. We died in New York City. And you know, it's these kind of things. There's one little one little affirmation after another. And but and but it's but it's, again I'm telling myself, no, Bob, no. This I've is seen not this true. somewhere. It's not it's I've, not. I've seen this somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, because <clears throat> when I'm at the when matter of fact, when I'm at the uh, art museum library, she said, by the way, I have a uh, booklet from he when the art exhibition that was his right here in Annapolis. And I thought, well, I thought at the moment, hot dog, that's it, I found it. There was an exhibition of Beckworth's work here in Indianapolis. That's where I saw that. Unfortunately, it turned out the exhibition was in 1911. So okay. it didn't, <laughs> it wasn't yeah, much yeah. value. So anyway, she said, you know, she said, look, he just simply wasn't that famous. So anyway, I noticed, though, in one of these little blurbs of information about him, it came from a book on John Singer Sargent, a very famous American painter. It turns out he and Beckwith were roommates in Paris for five years. They both went to art school in Paris, and they were roommates together. They knew each other. They were good friends their whole life. But the bottom of it said this came, the information came from Beckwith's diaries, which are on file at the National Cave Design in New York City. Wow. Yeah, so I thought, hot dog. You've got to well, read that. Now, and I thought, now I know where I got I to find out. I've got to find out because there's, there's got to be some explanation for this, some rational explanation for this. So I went home and I wrote to Ashcap Design in New York and asked if I could view his if I could view his diaries. And so about a week later, two weeks, so I got a letter from him and said, No, his his diaries are much too fragile. But when there is microfilm, they have a microfilm. You can get them from the uh, Smithsonian, the uh, Arch Archives of Smithsonian on microfilm, as you do with interlibrary loan. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get these. Somehow I'm gonna find out how I do this stuff. There's gotta be some nation. So anyway, so I, I went to the library and asked for the loan. But then after, they said oh, it would be about a week or so. So I went home and got the tape out. I started listening to the tape. The regression wrote, tape. Uh, yeah, the, my, the hypnotic session tape. And I wrote down everything that could be proven or disproven that I had seen or said. I found there are 28 facts that are things of people, dates, places that I could be proved or not proved. But so I thought, but then at this time, though, I wasn't looking for the proving factor. I was looking for one or two things that happened that were wrong. In other words, I said that Beckwith didn't have children because the wife couldn't have children. Now, if he did have children, and this is not real, you know. Yeah. And I saw him drink wine at the uh, outdoor cafe. Yeah. If he's a teetotaler, then this is not real. There's something mm -hmm. wrong because you could not have something like that in a memory that was totally wrong. That's what I was looking for. 
So, anyway, so you were ticking off the list. Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, but unfortunately, this time I'd already ticked off 10 out of the 28 things as being valid. But I kept thinking, I'll find the one. I need to find one or two big things that were wrong. So anyway, so that's about a week later, the library called and said, your tape's here. So I went down to look at it. I didn't realize Beckwith was a very avid diary keeper. Started when he was 19, made his last entry when he was 65. It was nine spools of tape, 17,000 pages Gosh. of diary. Now, what do you do, what do, you do with 17,000 pages of diary? What did it but feel it was, like, though, to... I mean, I guess at this point you were still trying to disprove it, but to yeah, I was trying to read how do you, you a diary read that you had written. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? I mean, so finally, I finally what I didn't know what to do, Tatru, but I thought they she said that in the diary also included there was an autobiography he'd written. I thought, good, read that; that'll give you the facts. Unfortunately, he started the autobiography in the spring of 1917. He was living in California. He was really sick. He had, he had uh, endocarditis which is an infection of the heart valves. Mm -hmm. He didn't know it at the time, but that's one of the, one of the, he had all the symptoms of it, but that's why he died of it in the carnitis. So anyway, so I, I start looking, there's nothing in that. But then if for some reason, I'm not sure why, they, uh, part of his diary had been excerpted and typed. And I'm not sure why they did it. But I mean, one of the parts was talking about a summer he spent in Venice when he's out of, out of art school. And he said he lived the whole summer on burnt eggs and wine. So I'm checked off another thing about him drinking wine. Right. But anyway, there's so you got seventeen thousand pages. What do you do? So I finally decided it's time to it's time to get some outside input into this. You need to talk because I'm you know that's a lot of that's a lot of pages to read, awful lot of pages to read. So I finally decided it's time to involve my wife in this again. She was an excellent excellent detective. So I finally it's time to tell her. Well, her reaction is not what I expected. She thought I was nuts. I told her what I had found and what I thought and I was investigating. And she really thought I was nuts. She said, no, you no." we said, you suggest that you've seen a movie or a book. There's a book about backwards, a movie about him. That's where he saw it. There is no, there are no, he was simply not famous. He was, he was really just a very minor artist in, 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 in those days. He simply made his money painting portraits. He didn't ever do any really landmark painting. So anyway, I told her, no, no, it's true. Finally, she said, okay, look, Bob, you're, you know, you're too, you're, you know, you're too involved in this. Let me investigate. So I'll look into this. I'll find where you got this information from. Now, actually, I was kind of hoping for this. So I because one of my biggest admonitions to all my detectives when I was in homicide was don't get yourself emotionally involved in your case. Oh, if you right. get yourself emotionally involved in your case, you cannot see straight. Because you're you, too you really attached. Can't. You, you overlook too many things. If you, if you become emotionally involved, you overlook too many important things. And boy, I was really emotionally involved in this case. I knew that. And I'd always tell my detective, don't do it. So I need an outside person with detective skills to look at what I'd done and to, and to look into this case and see. I thought and that, you, that, and my wife said she was going to do it. And I thought that was great. She was and and she was in detective. child protection. So you would really have to detach. Yeah. Yourself. And she was even more one to be wrong than even I was. So anyway, she did it for about a month, but basically come up with nothing, absolutely nothing more than I had. So I'm, you know, I'm talking and finally she said, and we sit down and talk, she says, Bob, listen to me. I couldn't find, you're right. Maybe, who knows? And maybe you have come on to something astounding here. Maybe something, but shut up about it. Please, <laughs> please, Captains, don't talk about this. Please, Captains, don't go spouting off about living past lives. And, you know, they just don't. Please, Captains are basically the backbone of the department. You are, you really are the backbone because all the higher ranks, deputy chief, assistant chief, chief, all come from the group of captains. That captain is your permanent rank. The rest of them are just appointed. You're there to pleasure the mayor. You can be chief for a while, then you bump back down to captain. 
the cat, the captains themselves, their backbone, their apartment, said, and you don't go spout, the captains don't go spouting off this new age stuff about past life, so just shut up. And you know, I thought about it for a while, and I thought, boy, you know what? She's Do you right. listen to your wife? Yeah, I listened to her, because I thought, she's right. This is, this is going to get me in trouble. This is going to, I sent the, I said, I'm just going to forget about it. So I sent the film back and all that. And I said, at that time, I, I was writing, before. I, this was actually before I started writing books. I was writing a lot of articles for various magazines. And I, I thought, well, I was doing, I thought I was going to get back to doing that again. But I'd be kind of stopped doing it while I was looking investigating Beckwith. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just start so, writing a magazine. Well, I was doing a magazine article on line of duty deaths in small police departments. And so I, I, we just had recently had an officer killed. And I wanted to talk to an officer, one of the officers who had been first there to get, it was actually a police captain. She had been the first person on the scene, get her reaction to what, you know, what she felt, what she saw and everything. Mm-hmm. So I could use, use it in my, uh, my uh, article. So I, I've talked to her and while I'm talking to her, she tells, doesn't tell us about having this out of body experience while she's at the scene of the murder. She says she, she arrived at the murder scene and the officer's laying and he'd been shot with the chest with the shotgun and he was dead or he was dead. And she said, she suddenly realized that she didn't know where the shooter was and said, the next thing she knew, she was floating above the body and seeing yes. it. And I'm thinking, I had now, now I've been the policeman for this about this time over 20 years, and I'd never heard anybody talk about stuff like this. You don't talk about things like that. Yeah, I did. And, and she seemed very matter of fact about everything. So I, I, I was just amazed. So it wasn't maybe a couple weeks later, I'm in federal court and we're waiting for a case. Now, in federal court, because witnesses, of course, can't be in the courtroom. You're, they don't get, so you don't, you're, you're in another room, so you can't hear the evidence, but would, mm-hmm. would uh, bias your, your testimony. So me and another police captain, some other people were sitting there, and he's talking. He's talking about one time where he and his partner had been on a run and they were in a drugstore and a guy come running the drugstore. Hey, so some guys hold up the supermarket next door. You need to get over there. So he and his partner ran over there and sure enough, there were about, about a half dozen guys with guns holding the supermarket up and they started shooting at them. And they, of course, they backed out, they backed out of the supermarket and they were having a gunfight. And he talked about having an out-of-body experience during the gunfight. And I'm, I'm just flabbergasted because I, I haven't heard anything like this. And all of a sudden, he's talking about how he said he thought he had died and his, his soul was looking at what happened. What actually happened is they'd call for backup. The backup arrived and they got, they got all the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But during a shootout, he said he saw himself floating above the scene watching what was going on. And again, I'm flabbergasted. So I started doing some real discreet inquiries on the police department. I found that the police officers, as a rule, have quite a few paranormal experiences, most almost always during moments of stress. And I found that I found some number of other cases, similar cases, this happening. And I decided, hey, this is bull. If they can talk about it and everything, and they know they're they're talking about, it, they're not embarrassed to talk about it. I can talk about it back with. So what I did is I reordered the microfilm and I had it made in a hard copy because you, you only had two weeks with this film. And there's no way you go through that much pages. And it took me almost a year, almost a year. But I went through every single page of his oh diary. Of his diary. Now, and, and, and as it turned out, I was able to prove. At first, I was able to prove 20, 26 of the 28. There was two of them that were left in question. I was later, finally later able to do those. But what really, what really swung me over, because I kept finding one affirmation after another. Okay, this is true. This is true. This is true. And finally, I got to December. I think it was what December 5th, 1886, and Beckwith was talking in his diary. That his mother was in church that that day, and died of a blood clot. Now I knew there are people who were important, women important in Beckwith's life, be that his wife or his mother. His mother was she was he was kind of her favorite, and she always encouraged him in art to be an artist. 
his dad always said he didn't know a better way to starve to death than being an artist. His dad didn't encourage it at all, but his mother did. He loved his mother dearly. Mm-hmm. So I knew that that the person who he said died of a blood clot had to be a woman important to him. And on and December 5th, 1886, his mother died of a blood clot. Gosh, I think another, that was another one, swung, that was one That was one swung me over. I mean, you can know a lot of things. You can even guess things about a person. You can get, make some guesses. You can't guess 28. There's no way. And how in the world, where, other than his diary, where would his mother's cause of death ever be recorded? Yeah. I mean, again, too many coincidence. I mean, they're not. Yeah, yeah way too many. Good. I think that probably swat, that was probably the thing that, when I found that entry. That just basically that was it. I knew that where this thing was going, I was not going to find the disproving fact. And other than that, I was actually going to prove it. I was basically able to prove all twenty-eight, all twenty-eight facts I'd looked on there. So I ended up. So I went back. So I basically, basically decided this is time to write the book, and I ended up writing my book about my experience. And you talk about in your book, it was it was very confronting of you to visit his grave. Oh yeah, well I was in New York again. I was while well, I was writing the book, I got a contract for the book, and I was writing the book. So I went to New York to let's see if I could find some of the sites where he'd been at. There was nothing left. Everything Beckwith had wrote about his diary was in the 1800s, early 1900s, and that was it was all gone. Everything had been replaced. But he, I found out he was buried in Kensico Cemetery which is in Valhalla, New York, which is a suburb of New York. So I, I had one day left. I, I did my research. It was actually easier than I thought. Because Beckwith had said in his diary about doing scrapbooks. He'd done a lot of how he's working on his scrapbooks. And what have you. I found out they were to New, New York Historical Society. So I thought and he had a ton of, he had like 10 or 12 scrapbooks. But it turned out they were mostly articles about him for places all, they, there'd be one incident and it'd be like, 20 different articles for different papers. So going through the scrapbook, Trump, I'll eat your thought. So I had an extra day there. I thought, well, wouldn't it be kind of fun to go visit my grave in Kensico Cemetery? I mean, come on. How many people get to visit their exactly. grave while they're still alive and their body's there? So I took a train up to Valhalla and went to Kensico. Kensico is a huge cemetery. A lot of famous people buried there. It's a beautiful cemetery. So anyway, I got, I went to the office and got a map of where Beckwith's grave was and started going there. And the interesting part was, it was just, it was, I got after walking and walking to get there, and I found the grave. But I found when I got close to the grave, especially up on the grave, I got this terrible, terrible anxiety attack. I mean, it was just, uh, sweating, heart beating crazy. And interesting, I found when I was a new police officer, whenever I would get into a really scary situation, my left knee would just shake like crazy. It was just shake. It really would. And this was this was all over again. This was me. I was sweating. I was heart beating. I couldn't hardly breathe. My left knee was just shaking uncontrollably. And I stood next to the grave. And I couldn't understand this. I'm thinking, there could be ghosts. Whatever spirit was in this man's body is in mine. Why would this? I couldn't understand. Why, but it was just unbelievable control. So I finally, what I did, I saw some, there were men working on some hedges, some workmen from the cemetery. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get a picture of me standing at the grave, short by I wasn't scared. <laughs> so I went and asked the man, would you take a picture of me at the grave? It's funny enough, when I walked away from the grave to go to ask the man to take a picture, it all left. The anxiety completely left. So I went to ask him, would you take a picture of me at this grave? So he said, sure, sure. So I went back, and again, it's just the knee, knee shaking, the sweating, the, you know, the heart palpitation. Yeah. And it took, it took this guy forever to take his picture. <laughs> take the picture, take the picture. And I never, never can figure out why that would be. I, I have no explanation for that. But once I left the grave, get no problem at all. But just standing over the grave gave me the awful, terrible anxiety attack. I have no idea. I have all people give me all these different, all these esoteric explanations for it. I don't sure. have any explanation for it. I don't know why. You might find out one day. 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, but probably not in this life. It'll probably be a path I passed on. But I have no idea why, because it's just a body there. The spirit is in that body. Yes. Is now in my body, and so why would you? Why would you be nervous looking at a body? I I don't understand it, but some my body based on me. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. Leave, because once I leave, I did it all go away. But I go back, it come right back. So you have no doubt that you in a altered How life could, no, was I mean, there, yeah, again you can't yeah there's no way there's absolutely no way you could guess 28 things about a perfect person's life and not be wrong about a single one mm -hmm. there's no way i mean you can make some guesses by age and where you died because I, what i was doing I, said, I kept making these rationalizations for example when i found i died in new york city i thought well what does that mean a lot of people buying big cities don't mean nothing when mm -hmm. i found i died in the fall i thought well come on now i forced the people who died here died in the fall I kept making these rationalizations myself that it didn't prove anything. But when you prove all 28, particularly, like I said, for, for example, I said we didn't have children. My wife couldn't have children. Well, on uh, October 24, uh, 1888, which coincidentally was 28 years to the day before his death, his wife had a really serious miscarriage and could never have children because of it. Yeah. I mean, come on. You just can't guess these things. And you it's just that can't. emotional feeling that you had. It was just yeah. a knowing yeah, you can't. You just can't guess these things. You, these things it just don't happen like that. That'd be to guess them would be too big a coincidence to ever be a coincidence. And your wife, how does she feel about it? She was boy. She was dead set against me publishing this book a hundred percent. And she was partly right. She was she was right because it, it pretty well ended my police career. It it, it really, wasn't it well really received did. by the police department. It, no, well, actually, it's kind of funny. There's two sides to it. I had maybe fifteen or twenty policemen come to my office. And kind of look around, make sure I can see them and say, you know, I always believe this. I'm really glad you did this. I really believed it. Yeah. Now, the chiefs, now the command staff, on the other hand, the chief and all the deputy chiefs didn't think this was very funny at all. They really didn't. And basically, they, it, it condemned my career at the police department. It really did. Because, again, like my wife said, police captains don't go talking about this sort of thing. The really bad thing was we have an alternate newspaper, alternative newspaper in Annapolis called Nuvo. It, it basically publishes the kind of alternative news and they interviewed about my book well this there's a there's a box with a paper on it on probably every on every block on every corner down in annapolis well the the when they published my story they had my picture on the cover said karma and believe me that did not go over well with the police department they have one of their captains on the the front of nuvo saying captain karma so basically what happened is they got karma. i got I got knocked out of homicide and put into a really meaningless job. It's, it was a, that basically put people before they retire, which I was kind of got the hint that was that the way one wanted me to do. They put me into a real, real meaningless job that meant to be maybe this time for you to retire, Bob. Basically, okay. well, so, I think you're very brave. It was it, you know it was something I had to do. Too mm -hmm. much information I got from Beckwith just kind of fell into my lap. It, I mean, it, it really it's kind of like the. Uh, scrapbooks okay i told you he had his reference by a couple hundred times about doing work on his scrapbooks and diary i could not find where they were at i could not find where they were at finally i was talking to an art dealer one time about that with and out of the blue out of the, actually when art dealer is an expert he used to authenticate art apparently there's a lot of forgery in american art mm -hmm. and it was a, it was an art expert and we were talking and she said you know his scrap out of blue and never i didn't ask her she's out of the blue she said you know his scrapbooks at the historical site in new york city don't you and just again, information like it's just was just dumb. it's dumped my lap. It's kind of like going to the art museum and seeing that where about his diaries. It kept just being dumped in my lap, and I felt. And again, 
It's just to me, it felt too important. This is something that I had to I had to tell about this. It felt to me like too important a story not to talk about. And look, my wife kept saying, "Take it to the grave, take it to the grave," but <laughs> I just I really felt it was too much too important. And have you located any of his other pictures, paintings? Oh, Beckman's paintings. If you ever see his paintings, they're not that great. They're simply not that good. Okay. And I'm I'm just I don't I'm not really an art expert of any type. I really don't know much about painting. I don't know. I really don't know hardly anything about it. To tell you the truth, so it's hard for me to judge any kind of paintings at all because mm-hmm. I really have no no real no real basis for. It. Interesting enough, I've had a lot of people ask me says. What's the meaning of all this? What's the so? What does this all mean? And and I basically tell them, you know, that's that's not my that's beyond my job. My job was an investigator. I'm not a philosopher, or a theologian. I can't explain it. I can only tell you what happened. The explanation for it belongs to the theologians and philosophers, not me. I'm gonna. I'm just a police officer who knows how to investigate things, and that's what I did. That was my part of the job. And. I, other than beyond that, I really can't tell you what it means. That's, that's not my, again, that's not part of my purview to explain what it all means. Well, it happened to you for a reason. I don't think anything happens by accident. How, how has it changed, changed you? Well, it gives me a different, the deal that there's part, finding out this is all true wasn't the real hard part. The hard part is accepting what it means to your worldview. In other words, you have to accept that everything you believed in your life up to this point has been wrong. You believe that, you know, the things you believed aren't true. There's a whole different brain, the whole different basis for reality that you didn't realize existed. And in a way, if you think about it, reincarnation is, is much fairer, much fairer than other systems of belief. And the fact that, okay, this life, you may have a crummy life. You may have, you really do, but you have hundreds of different lives. And some of them you'll be, a, you'll be Donald Trump and some of them you'll be an untouchable in Calcutta. Everybody has the spread of where you have the great lights where you're rich and you're comfortable. And you have the lights when you're not so comfortable. So it's not because you, you look at people say, that's not fair. How come he has all this money or she has all this money and all this power, and all this great. And I don't or a person has all this talent and ability. And I don't. Well, it's one life. Yeah. You don't know what the next life you could be. The, you know, they have all the talent, and the ability. You could have it all. So it's, and if you look at, at, at this at this life, for example, I worked a homicide. An awful lot of youths get killed. We had an awful lot of young people get killed. You think, this person is 17, 18. And you think, what, they is, had what no a waste. They, they didn't, what, did they, what did they get to experience? What did they get to experience? Nothing. And it seems one, if you believe in only having one life, it seems really unfair, doesn't it? Or you have, we had, I had a number of cases where fathers and mothers would murder infants. Now you think, okay, what, if you believe there's only one, you only get one life, what was the point? What was the point of this infant if dad or mom murdered him? But if you look at reincarnation, it's just one of hundreds of lives. It, it's, it, it's, not, it's not as important as you think because you go on to other lives. You do other, you know, you immediately once you're murdered, you go on and get to another life. That makes, to me, it's much, it's a much fairer, much, yes. and, and much, and to me, it, it fits more the facts of what you see in the world. Reincarnation does than the belief that there's only one, you get one life, that's all you get. And when you're done, you're done. Because some people, you know, you get people who are born with disabilities. People are born or people get, or you have children who have cancer. You think, what's the worst of fairness in that? If you're nine years old and you're dying of cancer, where's the fairness in the world? Where if you believe in reincarnation, you realize this is just one of a couple hundred lives, or maybe more. I have no idea how many you live. I'm assuming, I'm just assuming this. I mean, okay, what's it mean? It means, okay, you, you, you spent a life, you go on to another life where you live to your hundred this time. Who knows? So to me, there's a much, much more fairness 
in the reincarnation than other belief systems. Yeah, that's a great way to explain it. I, I was just thinking, I think it's a really interesting experience that we do um, experience lives with other people over and over again. You talked about your stepdaughter in this current life who you felt was your daughter. Yeah, I don't, you know, that was the only one. I've, I've, I've read a number of, actually, I did really, I really often did a little research this when I was writing the book and, and, and searching for things. A lot of people have lives where they experience with a person they know now or have, have had several lives with some of them they know now. And it's, apparently you're, you're good friends in this life and the afterlife both. Now, my only one I saw again was my, was my stepdaughter. And it was interesting because it banned her at the same age she was when I married her mother and yeah. took her in as my daughter. So it's, it's kind of like you're finishing something. You know, you abandoned her when she was four or five, and you took her back when she was four or five. Well, that's a beautiful you're way to think to balance, about You're trying to balance things out. Yeah. That's that was a, the only one I recognized. Yeah. That's the, way, that's, that's the way I looked at it. I mean, that's my explanation anyway. And the, what does Car the, the visual image of Carol Beckwith, do you have any uh, physical similarities, characteristics? Nah, people say so. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. There's a uh, gosh. I'm trying to think of Walter. Uh, I'm trying to think. He does. Uh, he done number of books on people. They he believes they carry their physical mm -hmm. traits on from life to life to life. They look like each other. And I I would think, what be the purpose of that? Why would you want to keep looking the same in every life if mm -hmm. you're experiencing different things, different experiences? But uh, I don't. I don't think so. Other people may think so. I don't. Yeah, that's just a personal thing. Robert Bobs Snow, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't no, asked I, you? No, I think I pretty well covered it, yes. You did very well. Well, thank you so much. And what? I think you're very brave and the book's fabulous. Oh, thank you. Again, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And for anyone that's listening or watching, your details will be in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> Bye for now. Uh, bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.